Good morning. It's great to see so many survivors. <laughs> and some of you almost said that as though you enjoyed the morning. That's encouraging indeed. I think that is real proof of the work of God's grace in your lives. Today we're going to be talking about a son learns humility. Not a son learns about humility, but a son learns humility. I realize all of us have enough of it already, and so we really, this is sort of an extra work of uh, grace that we're just sort of condescending to get material that we can teach others. (laughs) But uh, then there may be a few of us who have a habitual problem with humility, or at least our friends have a problem with our lack thereof. As we come again to this topic of sonship and orphans, I'd like to read this passage on Luther, from Luther. I read it before. Martin Luther speaking on the Bible. And this ought to be our prayer for today. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. I want to hear that again. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands, it lays hold of me. And that's what we really want. And I think that's a pretty good definition of humility. When the Bible has freedom to come into the life and then just run through every part of it and then for that to begin to express itself in love to those closest to you and then to those who are farther away, even non-Christians. The passage we're going to be studying is James chapter 3 and 4. The background is the famous exposure of the evil of the human tongue. It's like a little fire that sets the forest ablaze. And no man can control it. You're familiar with those words. Beware of being a teacher because you're going to have to give account for the way you have used your tongue. Then in verse 13 of chapter 3, we read these words. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. 
What a promise. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit that he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us he gives, and he gives more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? The Bible is called the sword of the spirit. If you didn't get any sword thrusts from that, in pretty bad shape. I'd like to just begin by asking you to look very closely at the passage, at the form of it. It's very severe. It is a call to severe honesty. But if you'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 18, there's a very sweet promise Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, the whole passage is talking about the wrong kind of conflicts and really how to get into the right kind of conflict. And it says here, if you sow in peace, you will reap a harvest of righteousness. You will be experiencing God's shalom, that state in which there is great blessing, peace with God, peace with people and even the right kind of conflict. And then as you drop down the passage and you come to verse, uh, really verse 5, you have the NIV saying something like this, the spirit he caused to live in us tends toward envy. Now that's one possible translation, but my own thought is that that is not really a good one. That the difficulty for the translator was that this word envy or strong passionate desire if you translate it the way I translated it means that God has a passionate desire and they weren't quite ready to buy that language for God 
But if you look at it, I think in the Greek, and, and I think some of the best commentators uh, would say this, the sense of it is really the spirit that he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us. That it really is the passion of God for our holiness. And if that's true, then, the question that may be uppermost in, in your mind this morning is, how can I be holy? And it really ought to be, how is God going to make me holy? And that's a lot different way of thinking about it. How is grace going to make me holy? Because if you're really thinking about how you're going to do it, you're not going to do it. It must be by grace. And we need, we need to look into how that happens, but we want the spotlight to fall on the power of grace to work in our lives and then to hook our faith into those promises. And so really then, this is a very encouraging uh, verse that God who lives within me, the Spirit, has a passion for getting my heart's love. And then that fits in very nicely with the next words, he gives us more grace. When our hearts cry out in need, we realize we tend to get into the wrong kind of conflicts. We have fights and quarrels among us. And where do they come from? Well, it shouldn't be any great secret. They come from our desire life, which is misguided. As he said in chapter 3, selfish ambition, envy, all of the other great things that live in us. And Johnny last night confessed that how many of these things were in him. And as I listened, I said, well, my life has been different from Johnny's, but yeah, I'm like that. Selfish ambition, envy, jealousy, wanting to be number two. No, number one. And that's what causes conflicts. Everybody wanted to be number one. Ortega y Gasset was asked one time, would democracy ever work in Spain? And he said it would be very difficult because we have a country of 30 million kings. <laughs> well, that's often true of our church. Will Christianity ever work? Well, not with, you know, 300 kings in a church or 400 or 1,000, whatever it may be. Um, or or just 60 kings. That, that, that'll do it. And so grace then runs downhill. That's the whole idea. God opposes the proud, but the emphasis is to tantalize us, to get us aboard the idea that he gives grace to the humble. And we might like to think every one of us has such great motivation that if God says be humble... Every one of us would say, oh, that's what I want. The Lord is going to give it to me. And because the Lord wants it for me, that's what I want. Right? That's where we are? Uh, not really. Most of us want to see some payoff. Isn't that true? And I don't think that's bad. And that's how Scripture reasons with us. And here, would you like more grace? Well, don't complicate it, he's saying. Humble yourself. Cut through the Gordian knot. 
God gives grace to the humble. And then notice the structure of promises following through this severe passage. One of the most severe passages in the New Testament is from verses 7 through 10 about how to get grace. Submit, fight, resist the devil, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, and then look, you sinners, clean up your act. Stop pretending. Wash your hands, purify your hearts, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, and then right in the middle of that is this great promise, humble yourselves and God will lift you up. And so the whole structure of it is built around promise, isn't it? And in helping you to get aboard that, I'd like to use two examples. And the first comes from the popular theology of how you become a Christian. I think we've all heard invitations that come in this form. Jesus, people are told, he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And if you've seen Holman Hunt's picture of Jesus knocking at the door, you know there is no handle on the outside, the handle's on the inside. And you must open the door and let Jesus into your heart. And so Jesus knocks and you're told you open the door. There's some truth in that. Jesus stands at the door and knocks and you must open the door. But here's what really happens. When Jesus knocks, instead of your opening the door, you put three locks on it. Maybe even one of those New York City locks got the steel bar in the, uh, that goes out in the floor about four feet away. And then as Jesus keeps knocking, instead of your running to unlock it, you push the furniture against the door. And he keeps knocking louder. And then you go get the refrigerator and you move that against the furniture. And the only piece of furniture you've saved is the couch. And as he keeps knocking, you hide under the couch. And so, as Jesus is knocking... It's a dead-end situation. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit around through the back door. The Holy Spirit goes into the basement, turns up the heat in the furnace, lights a half dozen fires. Smoke is coming up from below, and the sinner begins to cough and strangle underneath the couch, and pretty soon it's so hot and his pants are beginning singed that he gets out from underneath the couch and in desperation he runs to the door, pulls away the refrigerator, pulls away all the furniture and he unlocks the door and opens the door and says, Jesus, come into my heart. <laughs> and then when Jesus comes into his heart, he says, what a wonderful free will I have. <laughs> he may even write a book about it. He goes and sits in front of Holman's Hunt's painting. Yes, that's the way it is. <laughs> he just forgot about the sovereign grace. Now, 
I think instinctively even those who use the language I was speaking about would agree with what I've just said. I think any Christian heart recognizes that it's going to take grace to get that door open. That's why we pray for people. But now, often we forget that that spirit who moved into the basement and into the house is still sovereign in the life. And he is the one who is doing the work. And when we talk about justification by faith and sanctification by faith, by justification by faith, we come as enemies and faith is surrender of the enemy. It's giving up on all activity. It's laying down the weapons. As Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, it is accepting, receiving, and resting alone on Christ alone. So the enemy surrenders. In sanctification, there is still that surrender and respect to all righteousness for acceptance. But there is now the same faith which cooperates with the Spirit and the Word. And so faith now still relies exclusively on the gospel and upon Christ, does not build again a record of righteousness, but now it does cooperate with the will of the Father. And if we pick up that theme of the Abba Father cry that Johnny referred to in his testimony, what is that cry but the cry of delight, of fellowship, pleasure, but also of submission? Because if you look back to Mark, what is it, chapter 14, 32, somewhere in there, where Jesus in the garden cries out, Abba, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so it is the Son delighting to do the will of the Father. And so now when the Spirit comes into the heart, His aim then is to get you to delight in the will of the Father. But you can't say, I will have communion with God unless you have communion with His purposes. You are a son, and therefore you must be about your Father's business. And what a difference this makes when you do evangelism and when you do ministry in the church. You know that when you bring the gospel to people and the voice of Jesus begins to speak to them at the door, the Spirit is going to the basement. And what a comfort it is to know that you're not sovereign, but Jesus is. And he's conquering. And he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then he says, I give you my Spirit. He breathes upon them. And the Spirit then is going to be with us, so whosoever sins we forgive are forgiven. And whoever sins are retained by them, in the sense they don't believe them, they are retained. That is, it doesn't promise to us papal authority, but rather the authority to declare those who believe the gospel and turn from their sins that they have been forgiven of God. 
So that kind of authority is connected with the ministry of Jesus when he sends the Spirit, he sends us, he sends us with the Spirit. We are sent ones and we are carried by the grace of the Spirit of God. Now, if you see that, that gives you a whole different approach to how you think about ministry, how you think about your own life, how you think about your fellow believer. If you have someone that you are working with and discipling and that person is obviously resistant, the natural tendency is to give up. Isn't that true? You begin to see this person is so hard-hearted, God could never help them. And then you remember... There's a spy in that heart. That if that person is a born-again Christian, there's a spy on the inside. And that spy is going to turn up the heat to make them unlock the door to fellowship with the Lord. And you see, a passage like this is to inflame our desires that we may begin to think in a different way about the Holy Spirit. Well, it means that probably we need to do a lot of reflection about how, what are his works in my own life? When is he speaking to me? And uh, have I been misinterpreting some of the things that he's been bringing to me as not from him when they clearly are? For instance, if you, if you think of, um, if you think of G, the, the words of John the Baptist about Jesus... If you read there in Luke 3, uh, John says that when the one who comes after me, this one is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Well, now, fire is going to burn up the chaff, those who do not believe, those who do not turn to the living God. But fire is also going to do what to the person who's got it? Purify, burn clean. Lord, give me your spirit to comfort me. And God says, wonderful. Send the fire. <laughs> you said, I didn't pray for that. I prayed for rain. <laughs> you know, I, I don't make, uh, I'm not making light of the folks who pray for the rain. <laughs> the, you know, that's kind of a lingo in certain groups for praying for the spirit, praying for the rain. But uh, the, uh, as, as people in the Reformation tradition, we pray for the fire. And we get the rain, too. Fire and rain. But Jesus says that when the Spirit, the Counselor, has come, he will be the friendly prosecuting attorney. That's a pretty good translation, I think, of what is, you know, people have tried to translate comforter, counselor, helper, but I think it's closer to friendly, loving, prosecuting attorney who fires away at you at times you'd rather not. Now, the orphan, here's the heart of what I want to say this morning. If you get nothing else out of this talk, then get this, that the orphan misinterprets the fire and sees no friendship in the prosecuting attorney.
The second illustration has to do with myself, how it was hard for me to get aboard this passage. I had read this for years. I'm a Bible reader, and I read the Bible whether I feel like it or not. That's uh, my only hope, and therefore I, I read it. And that way you get a knowledge of it, and it can capture you. But I never got anything out of James, uh, at least this part of James. Yeah, the rest of it was helpful to me. This part I didn't like, and I thought perhaps it was addressed to non-Christians. How could God speak this way to, you know, nice guys like me? I mean, that was all there was to it. And uh, <clears throat> the difficulty with that view was that in verse 11, he says, Brothers. And uh, that's a little hard to run right by. This, and he keeps saying brothers all through the book to remind them. But out of my own background, I came from Oregon. And in my generation, Oregon was made up of very independent people. We were uh, original autonomous man. Dr. Van Til has written about the auto autonomous man. We were all autonomous men and women. My mother uh, was a gifted horsewoman, a good shot. I can remember seeing her open the kitchen window and a mole raised his head up in the garden out there and her 22 came up and she blew his head off. <laughs> so so uh, if the women were that way, what were the men? <laughs> My brother killed his first deer at the age of eight. So he was retarded, of course. But I mean, the rest of us got out there earlier. No, seriously. <laughs> the, uh, there was sort of this rugged individualism. But my problem was I wasn't a rugged individualist. And my father was killed in a hunting accident when I was two. And uh, I was by the time I was six or seven... I had these, uh, I had a phobic fear of sleep at night. I tried to stay up late at night because I think I had unconsciously concluded that my father just walked out the door one day and disappeared. No one seemed to me to have interpreted this to me. And uh, I thought if I went to sleep in the dark, I might disappear. And then I moved from Pistol River, Oregon, which is the mountains, into the city, 500 people, and you know, another 500 living around. And uh, I went to school, and I met all kinds of bullies. And they scared me to death. I remember we had these, the first the school wasn't finished, and uh, we had this outhouse, which is, you know, latrine without water and that sort of nonsense. Anyway, we, um, <clears throat> I remember I went in there, and there were two boys from up the Rogue River, sons of fishermen. And these five fellows were second graders, and they were fighting with their feet. I didn't even know how to fight with my hands, but these guys were efficient. They were just fighting powerfully with their feet. And my old eyes just turned into saucers. <laughs> you know, we came from a very peaceful country, even though the name was Pistol River. Everybody got along really quite well, and my family were, was orderly and uh, so on. And Well, out of this, at some point, as I had this deep fears, by the time I became about eight years old, Partly unconsciously, but partly conscious, I chose to be a kind of an autonomous, immortal, fearless person.
person. That I would never fear again. Well, that wasn't true. But nonetheless, I did change. I toughened myself up in every way I could. And you couldn't make me cry when I fought with one of those bullies. I got so they wouldn't fight with me. Who wants to fight with somebody who will never quit? And I developed one punch that worked. <laughs> Didn't have any others, didn't know anything else about it. My brother taught me to wrestle, but I had one punch, and if I could get that through, it was either right in the eye or right in the nose. I could often undo them. I learned that from an Indian boy. Well, that kind of hardening, you know, maybe there's some things in it that were positive, but there was something that was deadly too, because the decision was, I will never again be vulnerable. I will fear nothing, I will fear no one. And the result was, when we went swimming on the Rogue River, I was the one who died from the highest point on the rock. A wretched die, but nonetheless, I was number one. I think a lot of men have done that. Maybe not in this way. I could have done it the other way. I could have simply taken flight. I was a great reader. A lot of times I did that too. I just took flight and read books. But whether you fight or whether you take flight, at some point... There's a commitment to be an autonomous person that no one can really get into your life and hurt you. Does that make sense? I don't know whether women do this at all. And men may do it in such a different way from the way I did it. But I think in many lives, and I've seen students do it, I've seen them say, I'm going to get so immersed in theology that no human being can ever touch me. And they're probably right. The Holy Spirit can, but not any human being. And I think this may happen to women in other ways. <clears throat> I think if they have been wounded or hurt, they may simply desensitize themselves to pain by flight. You know, guerrilla warfare. Any of you ladies practice this? You go underground, but you are really good at it. I mean, the Viet Cong could have learned from you. I mean, he is overbearing, but you are a wonderful saboteur. You know which of his buttons to produce, to push, to show that he's not the invincible man he thinks. Right? Well, all of this is contrary to grace, and it's really pride, arrogance. And I'm not saying everything in this is wrong, but rather the spirit, I am going to be autonomous. And what God did was to show me that I, when I became a pack, was converted to Christ through reading Ephesians 1, and then I became a pastor eventually. One of the things I didn't want to be as an autonomous person was a victim. Any pastor here feels like a victim? <laughs> Well, I was not going to be a victim, and believe it or not, I became a victim. <laughs> Everything that I had thrown over as a non-Christian, I ended up being as a Christian, eventually. And 
inside I was seething with passive rebellion. I didn't like my denomination. I didn't like my seminary. And I didn't like the church that I served. There wasn't anything else not to like. <laughs> the dog I liked. <laughs> he did what I told him. <laughs> and the self-pity was so deep that I went around with several years of pastoral depression. It was noble depression. It was the depression of a sensitive spirit. You know, just like you. Someone who should not be subjected to all of this trash, you know, that is ending up in with you. And this has got to be a terrible thing in my life. Until one day, I was preaching a sermon, and I was real tired, very tired. And it was an old sermon, and it was a new church, was outside of Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, and the outline, the text, everything disappeared. And the thought occurred to me, maybe I shouldn't preach. I didn't have a thing to say. But then I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian, and we never stop, you know. I mean, I'm a victim of only up to a point. I mean, you got to do your duty. And uh, so I prayed. Nothing happened. In fact, the sermon got worse. And as I kept praying... And as the sermon kept getting worse, in desperation, I was preaching of all things in the power of the kingdom out of Daniel 2. <laughs> what a divine sense of humor there is, God's sense of humor. And so, as I got weaker and weaker in this particular sermon, something happened, and I just took some applications out of the Gospel of Luke. I did read the Bible, and I just showed how the power of the kingdom and the spirit went together in the Gospel of Luke. At the end of the sermon... I said to myself, if anyone at the door tells me this was a great sermon, I'm going to choke him. At the end of it, I just said, well, anybody want to know something about the power of the Holy Spirit? You know, sort of in final despair. <laughs> and um, the church was different from that point on. The church was revived. The only one who wasn't was me. <laughs> Prayer meeting attendance doubled. Within three or four months, the church attendance had doubled. There was a flow of new converts into the church. And believe it or not, the old guard and the new guard had wonderful unity. And even I could see it had happened. But, you know, my first thought was, I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm going to come to the church really prepared from now on, you know. Well, I didn't really, but, I mean, that was my first resolve. You see, I was trying to be this autonomous man, and until finally it just fell apart in front of me. I just felt I was a failure as a teacher, as a pastor. I was a failure as a Christian, and I cried for two weeks. I would say for at least ten days there were tears of despair of the victim. And then God convicted me. You are upset at the pride, the deadness, and the arrogance of everyone else, and you are chief of sinners in this department. And when I repented of that and saw that I was a coward, I really didn't have the guts to do pastoral work. Didn't have the backbone. 
I didn't love people enough to do spiritual inquiry, which is the heart of evangelism and pastoral work. You have to ask people, how is it with your soul? The church has been so neglected in this department that no wonder we've got a church out there with people not knowing whether they're going to heaven or hell or thinking they're going to heaven when they're going to hell. So at that point, when I repented, that's when I turned to the promises and this passage leaped out at me. And I saw this word, these words, I really wanted to have God near me, but I didn't realize I had to be near him. I wanted him to come near to me in revival without my responding. You see, what he was doing by setting the fires in the basement was torching me in order to see that I had to do some moving in response to grace, that he says, draw near, then you draw near, and he's promising I'll be there. Humble yourself, and I will give you grace. Submit to me. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. And that's not Arminianism. It's simply cooperating with what God is doing. Submitting to it. Crying out there's no strength to do it, and asking him to fulfill his promise. And then receiving the grace. Well, now, if you see that, then it just brings you a whole different way of reading Scripture, and especially tough passages like this. And it takes all the fog, all of the mist, all of the self-pity, the victimization, and it begins to show you that right where you're most the victim, or you think you are, God will visit you and give you a kind of strength you never had. You may not even call it strength, but it will be strength. And when this happened to me, and I repented in this way, I decided that I would go to the faculty of Westminster Seminary and share what God had convicted me of in my repentance. I took back my resignation from the seminary and the church. I created a very nice uproar. And it was very humbling to go back and say, well, okay, I take it back. Yeah, 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 that was tough. But everyone received me with love. But when I went through the faculty, I still remember what Dr. Van Til said. I told him about how God had convicted me of my pride, my being a coward. And here I am, this great elder statesman of the church. And uh, I began spiritual inquiry with Dr. Van Til. I said, how is it with you? Do you ever struggle with pride? Would you be willing to tell me about it? And he just poured out his life. And oh, how I wish the students who have studied under him had heard this. He said, I've struggled with it all my life. It's a terrible problem. It doesn't seem to get any easier as you get older. Man, that was great stuff. And then not only did I go through a number of, talk with a number of the faculty members, I did the same with students at Westminster. And I'd say we had, in over a two-year period, we had between 15 or 20 that made something like a, what? Conversion turnabout? Amazing. Amazing grace. I did the same in the church. I went to the elders and said, here's what God has done. 
And I did that after we, Rosemary and I had gone to Spain and I studied the promises of God for several months. When I, but when I came back, I simply said, look, God has shown me this about myself. I'm sure there's a lot more I need to know. But what about you? Uh, what, what sins have you been repenting of lately? Or how is it with you and your soul? Started with the elders. And uh, within two months, there's the beginnings of revival, both in the seminary and in the church. Wow. Now, who did it? Boy, I'm so glad I can write a book on my free will. How I did all of this? No, it was the Holy Spirit burning in the basement, setting me afire. Now, be comforted by that. Be comforted. Because it's fire from a friendly prosecuting attorney. And if he convicts you of unbelief, of pride, of arrogance, of independence, trying to be an autonomous cell, this is another way of saying orphan, then let him do it. It's not there to ruin you, but to give you the clean, fresh air of Christ. Now, as a principle, then let's draw a conclusion. Grace is for what? Sinners. Grace is for humble. And your next book can be Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no. Grace is for the humble. And then the key to it is that if you have grace, you're going to see it in the way you use your tongue or where you don't use your tongue. <laughs> if you look at the outline, I want to give an example from my own testimony with my wife, Rosemary. When I hear a good story, I like to save it. I know about you. And I like to memorize quickly the details, lest I forget it. Anyone like that? And so we heard this great story from a friend about going fishing on his honeymoon, and he caught a marlin and answered a prayer of 918 pounds. And I quickly said over my mind, 918 pounds, 918 pounds, 918 pounds, got it. <laughs> so Rosemary and I, she also loves stories, and so she came home, and the family was seated around our living room table, and Rosemary starts telling the story, and she, she comes out with 981 pounds. <laughs> now, you all know I observe perfect silence, don't you? <laughs> oh, you fellow sinners, you know what I did. Before I could stop myself, I said 918. And the whole family broke up in an uproar. My whole life was revealed to everyone else. Oh. And then here on that same page, you have an excerpt from our journal this summer, July 2nd. We're in Hiley. It's a beautiful place. Rosemary, she comes to me. You have been critical of me in many small ways. I apologized and asked her to pray for me. Now, that was a miracle. That's a miracle. That's grace. Grace worked in the heart by God. We talked through my need to accept her, and I then later used 1 John 1, 
verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, for my repentance, claiming the righteousness of Christ as Christ my advocate. And uh, then I was able to bring my concerns out for her that I was concerned about her health and her need to take better care of herself. But it was sheer mercy I didn't defend myself. Grace flows downhill. Are you with me in that? That what we're saying about the power of the Spirit and the life has got to be calling on the Father for the Spirit's presence to be strengthened, to be made full, that I may do particular things to bring Him delight. And our tongues reveal how much grace we have. If we use them to praise God, to show joy, to witness, then we are full of grace. If we don't use them that way, then we're just full of the orphan spirit. Now, here's the thing that may be very difficult to distinguish. If you look back in chapter uh, 3 of James, you'll find here in verse 14, he speaks of bitter envy and selfish ambition, and he refers to it again in verse 16, envy and selfish ambition. Now, what is the difference between selfish ambition on the one hand and faith on the other? Well, I think the, one of the differences is that where there's selfish ambition and envy, there's almost always accusing of others. And perhaps even secret accusing of yourself to try to atone for this uh, bad attitude. But where the person has seen what grace is about, that it gives us the spirit, and everyone who's a believer has that grace, we begin to look in a different way at them, not with an accusing eye. Praying Hyde, who's famous for eventually what, leading four people today to Christ, the man who uh, just devoted his life to prayer as the basis for amazing evangelism. Well, this praying Hyde, his... Early in his ministry, he came to this area where a local minister opposed him, and he got down on his knees privately to pray for him, and he found himself accusing the man in prayer. Did you ever accuse anybody in prayer? Wow, we do. And he said, that's the devil's work. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. The Holy Spirit convicted him, fire in the basement. And so he resolved from now on never to engage in accusing of people. It didn't mean if he disagreed with them, he didn't talk to them directly, but not accusing. A whole new style. And if you look at the conflicts here that are discussed in verses 1 through 4, these are conflicts leading to the tongue abuse described in chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that those conflicts come from accusing spirit, and it's called devilish. And we don't want to do that. And Rosemary already referred to New Life Church in the early days, and a number of key people took a commitment, if they had something against someone, to go see them directly, but never again to gossip about them. You know, gossip is the public confession of other people's sins. And that simply shouldn't be done. It's evil, and it must be seen as something so displeasing to the Holy Spirit that it must be completely forsaken and 
a cry of grace to have that happen. And then finally, it, it comes down to this, that we're going to learn to love the weak and the needy. And the more we mature, the more we're going to see everyone is weak and needy. Even the people who look strong. Suppose you're here with a husband and a wife, and the other person is trying to give you the image. In spite of everything, I've really got my act together. Now, this just doesn't come from people in Oregon. I have noticed there are a few Southerners who have that. I've even seen a few Yankees who acted that way. I've seen men do it. I've seen women do it. And we just want to be strong. But what Jesus calls us to be is weak, strong people. The weak, strong person in life or ministry is someone who in weakness gets grace from God, which fully honest, admits their sins, and then in that grace goes forward to be strong in love for others. And so, James is a book of faith action. If you want new power in your preaching, if you're a pastor... If you're not a pastor and you just want new power and you're living and witnessing, learn to be kind to the weak and seek to draw them to Jesus Christ. And there's no better way than reaching into all kinds of lives than by your learning to confess your weaknesses. When I meet a businessman, people have said to me, how is it that they will open up their lives to you? Many of them without even knowing who you are. And I said, well, it's real simple. I have a good sense of humor, and I have some compassion, but the main thing is this. I am more interested in them than they are in themselves. And that's what Jesus was for me. And that takes a week. You have to be weak to do that, because really I want to boast about myself. I want this guy to hear about what a wonderful person I am. He might not notice it, you know. <laughs> well, the glory comes down then when this person sees a miracle. I can remember on a plane. We were, we were coming home from Europe, and we got on this uh, chugging, uh, used to be Allegheny Airlines, uh, you know, everybody sort of weighs the luggage kind of thing to, before you get on and it's going to make it. But So there were businessmen on the plane and we were all made to sit there for a while and wait and we were talking with each other and uh, I asked the one man what he did and he said well he had a Chrysler agency in uh, Miami area and I said oh that's good how's business and uh, he told me and I said boy that's great I said I always pray for the businesses in my community he says you do I said, he said, well, that's interesting. I never heard about anybody doing that. So I said, yeah, it's really important to everybody that the businesses flourish, isn't it? He said, well, yeah, I feel that way. <laughs> I didn't know anybody else, you know, particularly there. And uh, next thing you know, he was introducing me to his son who was right in front of us, and we had this conversation about some you know, moving into spiritual things. And uh, give him a bit of the gospel, got started into it. Then the man across the aisle turned to me and says, would you be willing to talk to me privately? <laughs> and uh, after I said, well, just a minute, wait, let me finish this conversation. <laughs> so uh, I gave him a bit of the gospel, and then I turned to him and said, what did you have in mind? He says, 
I want to confess my sins. <laughs> so, you know, what does the Spirit do? I mean, it's just sort of a, you know, we were, everybody was laughing, talking, and having a good time, and God was moving right in, convicting people. Now, that doesn't happen all every time, you know, but if you have this wonderful concern for others, in your weakness, more interested in them than they are in themselves, You'll be amazed at the power that'll put in that communication because nobody believes that's normal. Unless, you know, you're a manipulator and that sort of thing. Well, in putting it all together, the threefold solution, what is it? Come to this passage and claim it as a son or a daughter. The grace is for you. Grace runs downhill. God gives grace to the humble. Well, claim it. Make it yours by faith. And then accept the grieving that's described in those final verses. Don't be afraid to grieve. You know this American thing? I'm not going to cry here. I was eight years old. I was never going to cry again. I don't suppose I ever did till I heard the gospel. But some of you men really need to learn to cry. I mean, Whitfield stands in front of these miners. They're like dead pieces. You know, they're just listening and they're not doing anything with the gospel. Then he gets down on his knees. There are thousands of them there gathered. And he says, if you won't cry for yourselves, if you won't weep for your sins, then I'll weep for you. And when he finished praying and he looked up, here were... Hundreds of faces that cold dust the tears had made streams of white down their faces. The hardest men in the world. Ah. Weep over the world. Weep over your own sins. But then don't lie down and self-pity and wallow in it, but rather see that this brings great joy. Let your emotions expand with your faith. We don't build our faith on our emotions, but faith which does not express itself with healthy passion is no faith at all. There's got to be some passion in faith. Obviously, if I've interpreted this passage right, the Holy Spirit has passion for us. He is the healthy, healing, cleansing fire. He is a comforter. Yes, but part of that comforting has the fire character to it. And then resolve today, reject the role of the accuser of the brethren. Never do it again. Well, you will do it sometimes. But repent of it quickly. Turn from it. And then, this is the hard part. Ask your wife once a month to evaluate, once every six months. No, sorry. Once a month, for six months, ask your wife to evaluate your progress in these things. Now, if you're here without a wife, ask a friend who knows you well. Ask someone who knows you well to evaluate your progress in this very passage, in your humility. Right? This is going to be fun. 
And then begin an adventure of affirming in your home, your work, your neighbors, wherever. Be childlike and open and daring in your witnessing. You are going to have a tremendous life. I'm going to have to sentence you to a lot of joy. A life sentence of joy. I think you could live with that, couldn't you? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we believe that in this passage you've spoken to our hearts that you have grace for the humble, that you oppose the proud, and your call is to submit ourselves to you. And we have not done these things. We've not resisted the devil. We've invited him into dinner. And we've been accusers of the brethren. And Lord, forgive us. We have not been sons and daughters of peace, but we have been often with selfish ambition and bitter envy. And we just ask for a deep cleansing now. Wash us. Send the fire. Burn us clean. And then, how we thank you that we can hear these things as sons and daughters by faith. And they don't have to terrify us, but they become the very fuel for powerful Christian freedom given by you. And we may not even feel, Father, it's free or it's powerful, but you know it is because you know what the chains are and we don't. So thank you that you're going to make them fall off. Now set us free, set us free to serve you with tears and with joy. Keep us from being ashamed of the gospel, which is the foundation for all of this. Thank you for the blood and the righteousness, Son of God. Thank you for a cross. Thank you for a resurrection. Thank you for your ascension and triumph and your sending the Holy Spirit. Truly, this is all his honor, all for his glory. Glorify yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now and world without end. Amen.